0: Mr. Carlson is also a co-founder of a related organization called Straight Gate Ministries that organizes vigils at churches and has organized 31 major pickets in Arizona, Southern California, Washington, D.C. area, and Virginia. They have picketed the Billy Graham Crusade, Promise Keepers, the Southern Baptist Convention, and Jerry Falwell twice. Oh my goodness, that's great, Today he will be speaking from his series, The Source of Our War Problem, Why Judeo-Christians Do Not Demand Peace, and how the Scofield Bible has been used to create a Zionist God icon called the State of Israel that has resulted in massive but frail public support for endless serial wars. Mr. Carlson tells us the celebrity evangelical leaders are the bulwark of Zionism and that exposing them as Pharisees is the key to ending the war-making mischief. Please welcome Mr. Chuck Carlton. Well,
1: now, Harvey has just completed my speech. (laughs) So I can go home. Uh, uh, But uh, I do have a little bit more to say. And uh, usually the way I do this is I carry my backpack with me and I just reach into it and pull out what seems to be what seems to be God-inspired, you see, and then deliver from that. Now, this is uh, the same little pack that I carried into Gaza. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that because what is going on in Gaza is today's Holocaust. And uh, it is uh, every bit as sinister as one can imagine. And uh, some of the clauses are the same as the Holocaust that we talk about so much. Uh, and, and, and it promises to, to, be, uh, to be to be much worse, I think. Uh, so I want to start out by talking a little bit about that and then putting it into context with uh, the churches in America today and uh, then where it's taking us and what we can do about it, what we think we can do about it. And I want to thank this audience for the, what you're doing uh, uh, the idea of getting a, a message out no matter how you do it is the key but of course you have to tie it to a little action and uh, i've met some people here who are very active who do really do take action and i think that's what you always have to keep thinking about is find a way to put legs under it and get it active uh, I, I appreciated what paul from said about the internet uh, we uh, Our little infant organization, six years ago, decided that we had no chance with the Zionist media. We really could not penetrate it for a lot of reasons. And uh, though we did publish a book, and we do have the book here, and it's on sale, and it explains how the Democrat party is controlled by the Zionist movement through an organization called AIPAC, which is a funnel by which money is brought around and brought back into our country to control our Congress. Uh, And uh, that's very clearly laid out in this book called One Nation Under Israel, that's where the title came from. However, uh, we decided that the internet was what we would have to use if we were going to be effective. And all of us were too old to uh, be ineffective. We didn't have time to be ineffective. We suffered from the same problem some of you suffered from. You need to get it done now. So we decided we're going to find a way to see if we can get done now. And another thing we liked about the internet is nobody could tell that we had gray hair. got out of we looked just as young as the people that were, are reading what we put out. And so we decided this is the way. We found tremendous complications and problems in doing it. We've been kicked off eight times, I think. I've sort of lost count. We've been shut down, suspended, everything you can think of. This happens to you. It doesn't happen. Sometimes it happens by accident. Sometimes it's just network difficulties and various problems and it looks like someone's after you, but they're not. It's just the way machinery doesn't work. Too many complications in the machine. Other times it actually is uh, targeting and we get targeted and other people do get targeted. And the internet is only going to be with us a little while unless we do something to secure it. It's going to be taken away from us just like the newspapers and their media, the radio, the television are. Unless we find a way to get control of the internet. The yeah. of front, the
0: uh,
1: Bill Gates wants to tax us out of it so that it would become financially impossible to send enough mail out to make be significant. But anyway, to go back to uh, what I came here to discuss with you, And then we'll talk a little bit in the end about our church pickets and why we do that. It sounds strange, but why we do that. Uh, I want to go back to Gaza and tell you that in uh, 202, just almost exactly two years ago, uh, I went over from Egypt and walked in to a place called Erez Gate. It's the gate you just read about last week where the young guy blew himself up and took out a security policeman at that gate. Uh, That's Erez Gate. It's the north gate. It's the closest one to Tel Aviv. And that's the way you get in. And, and when I went in there it was the only way out. And the way you got when I got there is I crossed the Sinai, I got some Egyptians to drive me over. Uh, we went I walked in the fishing village there called Elat, in the southern part of the city. It's a posh Israeli city. And I walked in and uh, like a fisherman would with my little backpack. And uh, then I took a bus and I, I made an amazing discovery in the bus. It was full of soldiers. It had, uh, it had, uh, it had uh, wall-to-wall soldiers in it, more soldiers than anybody else. And these weren't off-duty soldiers. They had their guns with them, rifles. And there weren't just men, there were women. One out of every three was a female. They were riding this bus from a lot one up north uh, to the cities to the north. And I don't know where they all got off. A lot of them got off in Tel Aviv before I got off. But I found out that in Israel, the buses are the military transports that move these incredible number of military around. There is more military per capita than in Israel than any place on the face of the earth. Far more than the Soviet Union or anything like that. One out of every ten persons. A huge, huge number. There are something like four hundred thousand in the little state of Israel. So they're everywhere. Every place you go, there are military carrying rifles. You, I even got hit in the face by a rifle carried by a female soldier who bent over and swung her rifle up and hit me in the fa- face when i was picking up my bag uh, and uh, so you just have them they're a hazard to you around you um but uh, in, in the first my first contact in israel with an israeli was the cab driver and a lot who thought i was a fisherman and he said where are you going and i said i'm going up to the christian colonies up north i didn't tell him exactly and he said why would you want to go see those animals that was his response Why would you want to go see those animals? I can tell you where to go to have a good time in Israel. This was his first first words I heard from a modified Israeli. Former military guy, probably served. And uh, I took uh, these buses, went on up and went on into Gaza. And I want to tell you just a few things about it. The rest of it's all in the news, but if you go there and you should, this is what you'll see. Gaza is a 20-mile-long gulag. It is an absolute, total, enclosed prison. When you walk in to the gate, you have to walk almost three-quarters of a mile, one kilometer, to get in. It's a corridor with walls on both sides, razor wire on top of the walls. In the middle are the pillars and all of the, uh, of the bulwarks, and finally the gates, and then a place where you check through and they go through your luggage like you're going through your airport here in Sacramento. And when I got in, through the procedure, got on in. I I had a couple of people ask me why I would go in there to see those people. What would you wanna see in a place like that? The soldiers trying to talk me out of going in. And um, when I got in, I looked back and took out my camera and photographed what I saw behind me, this corridor, and there was not a soul in it. I was the only person that went through it. I didn't even realize until I was in that I wasn't, there was no one else going in. In about 30 minutes that it took to walk into Gaza, I was the only human being who went in. And when I looked back and took the picture, there was no cars in the picture, only a few soldiers standing there guarding the gate. There's a million, two hundred thousand people in there, and only I got in that time, during that half hour. And no one left, and no one left. It is a total locked-in prison. It has the Mediterranean on one side. It has fences on the other side. The people that get out and conduct mischief have to break out. It's like going to bomb your enemy by breaking out of a jail and then going after the jailer in his house. That's what it's like for a Palestinian to go out and make war on an Israeli. He has to break out of jail first. The third day that I was there living, I, I stayed in a flat that was owned by a Baptist church. Now, I should tell you that I'm a former Baptist deacon. I raised my kids in the Baptist church. And... Um, I spent much time in the evangelical movement, so when I talk about the evangelical movement, I'm not talking about it as a, as a, as a mad-raving atheist. No discredit to mad-raving atheists, but I happen to be uh, from the evangelical movement. So I'm talking to you about something that I was in. I lived, I stayed, I rented this place from the Baptist uh, Convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, three-story building, and the third night I was there, the Apaches came back. By the way, there's bombs every night. You hear them someplace. But the third night I was there, they were really close. I couldn't sleep. I got out of bed, and I climbed the ladder that went up the top of the roof with my camcorder, and the Apaches were right overhead. Bang, 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 bang. You know how when they come by your house at night looking for somebody to the chopper, how the, how the things beat, and the, the Apaches were right, right up there in the dark, a squadron of them. And they were firing these Hellfire missiles into the palestinians one right after another about one minute intervals it took them 40 minutes to fire 40 missiles and i ran out of uh, videotape after about 20 minutes and had to quit went back to bed and lay there in bed and listened to them until they went home they killed four palestinians that night they wounded about 40 they shot about 40 missiles i photographed 20 of them they were so close to me that you could have shot them with a 22 rifle if you could have seen them. They had night vision, so they could see me on the roof if they wanted to, but I couldn't see them. I could only photograph flashes coming out of the Apache, made in Mesa, Arizona. The missile is made someplace in St. Louis. The people that died are made right there in Gaza Strip. That's where they come from. That is what life in Gaza is all about. Now, the only thing that's changed is it's a lot worse. It's now not just every day, it's all the time every day. They killed 17 people this week. They only killed four people in Gaza the week I was there. They assassinate these people with these Apaches. These missiles are directed to hit cars on the move from a mile away. Anything they can see, they can hit. They hit a man in a wheelchair and they literally blew his wheelchair apart and hit him in the wheelchair. Sighted the thing on a guy in a wheelchair and they were probably couldn't even be heard. They were probably at least a half a mile away and were in the sun somewhere. And the guy didn't know they were around until this blind, half blind, half-deaf man who lost his hearing being tortured in an Israeli prison. That's how he lost his hearing. He lost one eye in an Israeli prison where he served about eight years being tortured. They killed him with one of those missiles, and he couldn't even see who was attacking. I felt perfectly safe because they were right over me. They just happened to be there. But one of the reason I want to tell you this story is that there was no fire. There was no 22 rifle fire. Now my guide, who was introduced to me by friends and was a very trusted guy, I said, "Show me some guns for sale." He did. He took me to a place that had two rifles. They were high caliber rifles, 30, 30-6 or something. Ancient looking things. I mean, they were not. They were hunting rifles. Wolf action rifles, $3,000-some dollars each. In a place where you can get lunch for 25 cents. On the street in Gaza, you can buy a falafel sandwich with, with, with veggies, there's not much meat. But you can get the falafel sandwich for 25 cents, one shekel. They have to use the Israeli money. They're forced to even use Israeli money. And uh, you probably read uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Israelis came in and actually took over two of the banks and stole all the money you remember seeing that? So they have to use Israeli money, and then if they really want to, they come in and clean out the banks and claim they're looking for terrorist money. This is what we're supporting in Israel. Now, all of you knew that. There's nobody that didn't know it, but I know, and, and many of you know the story even better than I, and some of you have been there. So if I'm telling you stuff you already know, I apologize, but I know there are a few young people here who haven't heard this story. and. Um, I have a videotape that we made. I didn't bring any along, but you can buy it on our website. It's, a, it's the talk, something like this. And in it, I plan to show the video. But we have a little video of the missiles and the pictures of the entrance and some of the buildings in Gaza and what it looks like in there. So, um, now, um, Israel has to have an excuse to do this. They they can't just go in and kill people every day, day after day, without an excuse. What is their excuse? When they first set up their state in 1948, which we, of course, gave them uh, at the UN petitioning agreement, that agreement is in the book, One Nation Under Israel. you can read that petitioning agreement, it says that there shall be a state of Palestine and there shall be a state of Israel. That was what was agreed to. And uh, there is not a state of Palestine, is it? But when when, when the Israel set up their state, their excuse for what they did every day to the Palestinian people, which they've been doing since day one, 1948, uh, driving them out of their homes, killing them if necessary in order to make the move. What what their excuse was, is we're victims and survivors of the Holocaust, and therefore you need to cut us some slack. Things were tough where we come from, and if these people get out of line with us, at least a little bit, we need to protect ourselves. You all know that. The excuse has always, for almost everything, has been uh, the Holocaust, we're Holocaust survivors. So we, well now that excuse, of course, wears a little thin with the Palestinians. Because there were no Palestinians that were involved in, that anybody knows of, that were even involved in World War II, that I know of. Um, World War I, maybe, but uh, the Palestinians really didn't fit very well. What the modern excuse being used right today is, and if you don't recognize this, it's in your papers every day, the suicide bombers do it to us, so all we're doing is keeping them in check. All we're doing is correcting the suicide bombers. That's Israel's excuse for the Apaches, and the Hellfire missiles, and the tanks that now shoot projectiles that explode darts out around them, anti-personnel darts. And when you see the pictures of the kids in the hospital that have been hit by this dart it looks like they've been hit with a shotgun except they're quarter inch long pieces of steel with a point on them. This is what the Israelis use and their excuse is the suicide bombers. So I want to talk about that just a little bit and and give you a a little information you should know. Number one, the suicide bombers so-called, I call them the human bombs because that's what they are. Here are just two or three quick facts And you'll find a lot of detail if you go to our website and you want to know about this. Number one, they attack military targets in almost every case. Virtually every case. Even where they go into a disco. If you go into a disco in Israel at night, it is full of military. That's who's there. There, you see, what do soldiers do at night when they're off duty? They go and get drunk someplace. In every army in the world, you'll have a good percentage of them going someplace, well, what do you think the Israelis do? The discos are open practically all night. These disco explosions are targeted at off-duty military people who are just as much soldiers as anybody else. The buses haul almost, every bus hauls military. I rode 1,100 kilometers in Israel on buses. In every bus I was on and in every one I saw boarded, There were military on board the bus because that's how they get their people around. They have no other way to transport all these people around this place except on the military and and the civilian buses, which they own. The government owns the buses. So it's basically, as their bus, it's basically a military transport on which civilians ride. I was a civilian riding in among these guys. And by the way, you are very careful what you do when you're on the bus because they watch people like me. You take your camera out and take a picture, and they don't like what you're, they're curious about what you're photographing, you'll see them poking each other and saying, I'm taking pictures of the Bedouins out there in the desert. You're not supposed to take pictures of the Bedouins in Israel. You're not supposed to take pictures of the gate either where you come in. And I I don't know why they, they, they I know they had to be watching me because I was the only one. But they didn't seem to care if I took the picture, and they let me take the pictures out. But the bombers bomb and we'll repeat this. The human bombers select military. Now there's proof of this. There's absolute, total proof of it. About eight or nine percent of the Israelis uh, in, are in the military, but that includes the reservists. They never give you the reservists' pictures. But the number of people killed out uh, of the all of the Palestinian actions. In the last two years, have resulted in the death of about 850 Israelis, and over one third of them have been military. So, if if the people who were carrying the bombs were trying to kill maximum numbers of civilians, they, by accident, should get about 7 or 8% military. I mean, the the odds are 7 or 8% are military, so that's what they could get. Since they get four times that many, it sort of stands to reason that they're aiming for the military. But the military is in among the civilians, everywhere. And McDonald's hamburgers, the guy with his rifle, is eating a hamburger right next to you. At the table, right next to you. So they're everywhere. So the the bombers go out picking military targets, and and they sometimes even hit their own people. The Palestinians did not fire at the Apaches because they don't have anything to fire with. They have no shoulder-held missiles, no anti tank guns, no nothing. Their artillery, their... Army, their navy, because they even swim out with some of these body bombs. Everything that they have is people carrying individual handheld bombs that they deliver to somebody and say, Hold this, sir, and then they pull the trigger. That's how Palestinians kill Israelis. Israelis kill Palestinians with American weapons every day. Every day. Big weapons. If they wanted to, they could put one in the middle of this room. They can put in the podium. They can see you in the dark. They're good. So, so much for, for, for the facts that I saw. Now, in terms of, I want to talk to you now about the most embarrassing thing I found there. There was a Baptist church right in the middle of Gaza. A Baptist church. It's in an old mosque. I met some members. I interviewed two or three of them. One of the persons who was there was an American woman. She's been a missionary there for six years. You see, the Baptist church, the Baptist convention is extremely embarrassed by that church because it exists in total harmony with the mosque next door. The people are integrated into the society. They walk to work together. They live right beside each other. There's anti-Israeli graffiti on the wall on the front of the Baptist church. And there's anti-Israeli graffiti on the wall in front of the mosque. Says the same thing: keep them out of here or whatever. Um, now, the Southern Baptist Convention has taken the position that the Palestinians have to go, and they've accepted the idea that God gave the land to Israel. So the Pal- so the Southern Baptists are rather embarrassed, you see, that there's not conflict there. How can they explain members of their own organ of their own church? Going to, school, going to church and bringing their children to a Baptist church when they have proclaimed publicly that the Palestinians need to get out. It's God's way or the highway. This is the way Richard Land put it. See? It's God's way or the highway. God gave this land to Israel. Richard L. Land, it's in this little paper that we, that we produce called, uh, The Source of Our War Problems, Why Judeo-Christians Do Not Demand Peace. In fact, they demand war. And I'm gonna to explain to you why they do it. It's the most important part of my, my talk. It's the only thing that's original that you can take home that you can't that you won't probably see too many places. I'm gonna to explain to you why. not just the Southern Baptist Convention, you Southern Baptists who are here, but also almost every evangelical, almost every evangelical church has supported George W. Bush's war efforts and have have, have, have persisted in saying that Palestinians have no rights whatsoever to be there. They have to go. Uh, there are countless uh, articles about it on our website, many. Uh, so if you go to our website, whtt.org, you can read them. And there's a lot of detail on the, on the human bombers. And there's a story about the seven or eight, I think it's eight women now who've done this. Eight women. Uh, And what they said, and and it talks about what happens to them when they get caught. The Israelis claim they capture about three for everyone who actually is able to deliver the bomb. And nobody ever hears about these people. They just disappear from the face of the earth. These 22-year-olds become captured, and nobody knows what happens to them. Well, everybody knows what happens to them, but there's no record of it, you see? Because torture is legal in, in Israel. Torture is legal. In Israel, and the bombers who were captured are probably tortured to death. Probably tortured to death. Now, that's I say that probably because I can't prove it yet, and I think that is what we will find when we finally do find out what happened to these disappearing people. Uh, getting into this thing with the Baptist Church. Um, Richard Land, uh, we picketed at the Southern Baptist Convention in Phoenix, Arizona last uh, July. There were thousands and thousands of people there. And after that picket, uh, they passed resolutions that said they supported the war unequivocally. And they also said that, uh, and they gave an explanation. They said, uh, the Bible says that you must love your brother. And so then, uh, so then, Public officials are appointed by God to defend them. So what they're saying here is, they must love their brother, so they can't kill him themselves, and so they appoint leaders like George W. Bush to kill them for them. This is what they say: you must love your enemy, and so, public, and so you must. Uh, so public officials are appointed by God to defend them. You'll find these quotes in this little piece, uh, which I recommend you get. You're we give them away if anybody buys anything, and they're a couple of dollars if you don't. It's the most important piece we've ever published. And we're updating it now with a couple of new ones that are coming out, but it, it, it tells you everything in this talk. Now, uh, why do they do this? What What is it that causes them? Do, do I have to convince anybody here that the evangelical Christian right is 100% behind the State of Israel no matter what? Is there anybody that needs me to go further explaining that? No. No. Jerry Falwell says it. Uh, There's new organizations being formed. Um, Gary Bauer is a a very prominent Christian Republican. He's starting a new organization, which is called, we call it NUKI, the uh, the, the National Committee for Unity Israel. And they've just taken the national off because there's nothing national about it. It's the Israeli. Uh, uh, committee uh, for Unity in Israel. Israeli Committee for Unity in Israel. So it's really all Israeli. It's run entirely by Israelis and by very prominent Israeli patriots in the United States. And the leaders of it who go around speaking at the colleges uh, are prominent Christian leaders and Christian businessmen, professing Christian businessmen, professing Christian businessmen, like uh, Joseph Ferra, who runs World Net Daily?
0: Uh, a, a good
1: example of the, the beginning of the takeover of the internet. World Net Daily is, is dominated by Zionist influence. And Joseph Farah is speaking on the campuses all over the country. He just spoke at Colorado University, sponsored by this Nuki, uh, the National Coalition for Unity in Israel. And it's a pro Israel promotion in the college campuses up and down the line. Joseph is the most successful internet operator in the history of the internet as far as uh, propaganda news is concerned. And he's working for this organization. Clarence uh, uh, Wagner, who I debated with on talk radio, is on. I saw him on the committee. And Kate Arthur, who runs the biggest Bible study group in the world, operating Bible studies in 63 countries. Kate and Kay Arthur called Precept Ministries. Men and women from all over go to these things. Catholics go. Lutherans go. Episcopalians, all kinds of people meet in these Bible studies. It's all run by people who are stumping the country for the state of Israel and who claim to be Christians. Okay, now how does this all come about? The most important part about this, which I want you to get if you don't get anything else from this talk. In about the same time as this famous... Zionist, for the first Zionist, I guess, or second, depending on how you count, Theodore Herzl wrote this little book, The Jewish State. Everybody's read it, I bet. It's, it's the plan for the state of Israel. It, it laid out the first plan in 1895. About the same time as Herzl was writing this little plan to create a state of Israel. Um, and I know there'll be some historians here who say, well, he wasn't the first. But about the same time, there was a there was a Criminal uh, who got out of the Kansas State Penitentiary named Cyrus I. Schofield. He would been he put in there for defrauding almost everybody he knew, including his own mother-in-law, though she didn't complain. He was a forger by profession. He declared himself to be an attorney and at practiced law, and then he forged documents. He forged other people's names on convenient documents, like like the deed to your house. And so that was what Schofield did for a living, and he finally got caught. He deserted his wife and two children. That's right. He was a renegade in every respect of the word. And there's a book about him called The Incredible Schofield, which is the only good biography on the subject, and that is worth reading, just to show that there really was such a person. Anyway, um, Schofield, uh, for some mysterious reason, became promoted to write a new Bible. And that Bible became the Bible that promoted the state of Israel as a God that should be worshipped by the evangelical movement of its day. That's what really happened to it. It It's called the Schofield Study Bible, Schofield Reference Bible. I have a couple of them here. I'm having trouble with this. Schofield in his book, and the man who wrote it did us a great service. He was not a writer, he wrote a good book. He was was a very talented researcher, and he wrote tremendous books. And the only one who ever really properly exposed uh, this this, uh, Schofield movement. Okay, now, are you hearing me? Yeah, okay. Here's how it all works. Uh, What Mr. Schofield did was that he took a King James version of the English Bible, the regular, honorable, venerable old King James version of the English Bible. And uh, by the way, after being a forger, he miraculously became a pastor uh, in a uh, a congregational church in Dallas, Texas. Fort Worth, I believe, more correctly. And while he was there uh, preaching and building his congregation, which was, he was quite successful at, he, he decided to write this Bible. He mysteriously decided to write his own Bible. And so he went off to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, without any visible means of support, and there he lived for four years. Well, he put together what is now the most popular Bible on the face of the earth, the Schofield Study Bible, the most broadly sold and the most used in seminaries. They're used and they have been used in evangelical seminaries for almost 50 50 years, I guess. Um, Very, very extensively. Uh, Now, what did Schofield do? Well, he took a yellow pad, like the one I have my talk written on, and he uh, tore the pages out of a King James Version of the Bible, and then he wrote footnotes to them, explaining what the verses meant. You see, for the benefit of the readers, he explained it all. He didn't, he being a forger, of course, he didn't originate what he wrote, he stole that, too. Uh, he stole that from a man named John Nelson Darby, yes. who was, a, who was a, in, a, in the, who had also acquired it from Margaret MacDonald. Margaret MacDonald being a 14-year-old mystic who dreamed of the end of the world coming. Uh, she was in Scotland, and so was Darby. But Darby came to the United States, and he sold his ideas to this, Cyrus Schofield and Schofield then incorporated those ideas into voluminous footnotes in the Bible. Now I have here uh, one of the original ones, a 1908 version of the Schofield Study Bible, and it's got about—you can't see it from back there—but it's about 50% footnotes in some places and 50% text. Now most of the footnotes are very benign; they would not lead a pastor of an evangelical church astray, particularly, but. There were a few that were extremely uh, carefully constructed, and in fact, I think could have only been constructed by the people that actually owned the Bible. Uh, It was called Oxford University Press. Oxford University Press owned the Bible from the very beginning, and they, of course, uh, upon Schofield's death, they inherited the ownership of it, and they went on ahead and changed it over and over again, re-editing the Bible, changing the text, of the footnotes, and each time, still carrying Schofield as being the editor. So the newest edition in 1983 still says Cyrus Schofield is the editor, even though he's been dead since 1917, 1921, 1921. Now, I want to read to you a couple of things in the Bible, and then you'll understand why Richard L. Lamb says what he does. And to do this, I have to prevail upon you to listen to a few, few words of scripture. Now, I've debated uh, a Jewish guy named David on a public, tele- a public radio program not very long ago. And David read this same scripture to me. He called in and he read this to me. And I debated a Christian guy named Clarence Wagner, who's part of Nuki. And Clarence Wagner read this same thing to me, the so called Christian uh, from this organization. And, and so I seminary where all the Baptists, most of the Baptist preachers are trained, Southern Baptists are trained is on the board. It's got his name in the front. The seminary leaders are all through this. You see, God gave an unconditional promise to the, let's go back and read the promise. Here's what, listen to it again. You gotta read, you gotta listen to it again. And And the Lord said to Abram, get you out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into the land that I will show you. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless those that bless thee And thy name shall be great, and thou shalt be blessed, and I will bless them that bless you, and curse them that curse you. And in thee, all of the families in the earth shall be blessed. Now, I want to talk about that last phrase. In thee, all of the families in the earth shall be blessed. Every Christian church, from Catholic to maybe, I don't know about Jehovah's Witness, I don't know about some, even Mormon, maybe. I don't know about Baptists, all. Christian religions that claim to be Christian say that that phrase pertains to Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ was came down through the lineage of Abraham, through David. Remember the story. And Christians believe that Jesus Christ got his lineage from Abraham, of course Jesus uh, Jesus was immaculate. So it was really his father's genealogy. It was Joseph's genealogy. Do so, you follow me? What? What this promise has said through all Christianity, Martin Luther, the Pope, anybody you want to pick, is that God was promising that Abraham's heirs were going to deliver a Messiah named Jesus. That's the Christian view of this. The the Jewish view of this is uh, we are the chosen people and we are entitled to the land because God promised it to Abraham's heirs and we are Abraham's heirs. Never mind that there is not a single person living in, in, in Gaza or anywhere in Jerusalem who can show one drop of blood or one bit of DNA connection to anybody that might have lived 3,000 years ago in the same place or someplace nearby. There's no such connection at all. Never mind the fact that 85% of the people who live in Israel are almost as European looking as I am. Most of them look like Oral Sharon. They're Eastern Europeans. They don't look like the Arabs, even. They don't even look, The Arabs, who are the Semitics? The, the Arab people are the Semitics. They still look like the Chaldean people. Okay, so what Schofield? this was put in here and after the State of Israel was, was, uh, was created, if you go back to the original, you'll find that it wasn't in there because Scofield wouldn't have known there was gonna be a State of Israel unless they told him. Unless the people paid him, totally. and it would have been ridiculous to reference the State of Israel in 1916, 1917, uh, uh, simply because no one wanted to know what you're talking about. In fact, the night the Bible or the uh, dictionary, the 1950 dictionary, does not have the State of Israel in it. In 1950, they hadn't put it in yet. Webster <coughs> didn't have it in yet. Israel meant a tribe that dated back to the biblical character. Okay, so now there's more, there's one more thing, there's a lot more, but there's one more thing I'm gonna cover. Another footnote here. How do you think anti-Semitism became so important to the Christian right leaders? Why is it they talk about anti-Semitism all the time? Well, it's because in 1962, uh, Oxford University Press put it in the Schofield Bible. Here's the quote, and those of you that are doubting, doubting Thomases has come back up here and read these. Here it is. In, uh, the note is to the same verse. There's a whole page of notes to that uh, little verse. And it says, For a nation to commit the sin of anti-Semitism brings inevitable judgment.
0: <laughs>
1: For a nation to commit the sin. Now anti-Semitism is a sin, you see. It's the 11th commandment, thou shalt not
0: anti-Semite. <laughs>
1: Nations that do it in the future are going to be even worse. It's got that in there. Well, I could go on a lot on this, but this is a very key thing, and believe it or not, it is the basis on which the entire evangelical movement backs Israel. And then they've warped and bent and twisted scriptures all throughout, which we've covered a lot, and we continue to cover these, because they are extremely important. I'll tell you, they're important for two reasons. First of all, it's killing the Palestinian people. That's the one reason. Who's got my sign? Oh, okay. The other reason is it's destroying Christianity. You see, Christianity is all right, folks. There's nothing wrong with what Christians are supposed to believe. It's all in it little book called the New Testament. They just made a movie about Jesus' life. There isn't anything about killing Palestinians. Yeah. Thank you. This is what we use at the churches. Go to the Baptist Church. It's a little sign care this. Right. Yeah. It's have one It's ultimately keeping people from considering that maybe there is a God after all. I mean, what what they're doing is <laughs> not <But>, just ruining <but>, the Palestinians. <laughs> it's the most destructive thing that's happened since Martin Luther's time, perhaps. I'm not, not talking about Martin Luther being destructive, but at the time when that the Catholic church had essentially destroyed christianity by selling salvation and in, in terms of uh, the little promises that you could buy from them and uh, turn on salvation for a scroll you know like i mean this is the same thing this is what's happened to evangelical christianity the baptist church that i take my kids the place my kids went so these are some of the this is the basis. This is it in a really nutshell. We could go on and on and on, but I'm, I, I think I'm running out of time. I have a feeling that I'm running out. Um, but I want to talk to you, and I want to quit, before I tell you what we decided to do about. We decided, first of all, to write it out very factually. You dig it right out of these things. We compare this one to the changes that are made in this one. And then we say, how did you make those changes? Look what you've done. You created the state Between this book and this book, you've now created the state of Israel that didn't exist. When the first one was written, and, and they didn't even exist when Abraham was talking, God was talking to Abraham. The state of Israel—I mean, Israel was the name of one of Abraham's grandchildren. That's right. At the time God was talking to Abraham, if you believe the account, you don't have to believe it. But if you believe the account if that really happened, God was talking to Abraham about Israel, about and and. And there was no Israel because Israel was his grandson who wasn't born yet. Abraham was hundred years old and had no children, the story tells us, right? Some of you remember that, right? So, a state of Israel in, in biblical times? No, it wasn't. So, uh, we decided to start an internet picket for the church. We decided to tell the church what we think of them. And we decided to start going around the pastors because the pastors they made a very good business of this. And so what we seek to do is we seek to inform Christian people about this. We seek to get to them and explain to them that something's wrong with what they're being taught. In order to make that work, we decided we had had to put teeth into our picket. We had to actually go out and do it. So we started, we made a bunch of big signs. We get people together, we've got some here. Tomorrow we're gonna go out and do this. Uh, Now, let me tell you, this church that we're going to, uh, we're not just going to show up. We sent the pastor a two-page letter. And we explained to him exactly why we thought he was living in apostasy and leading his tribe in blood. Why he was responsible for the blood of, in the Middle East. We wrote him a letter and explained that to him. Then we sent the letter. We found the email addresses of 45 members of his staff. And we sent the letter to them too. So he couldn't just bury the letter. It went to his staff. Then we found the addresses, email addresses. It took us about 20 minutes to do this. And if we'd had more time, we would have found more. We found 290 pastors in your town, in Sacramento, and we sent the letter to all of them. (laughs) And and next week, we'll send them all a letter saying, dear pastor, we're thinking about attending your church. We called the pastor and asked him his position, by the way, and he said he absolutely backed George W. Bush's war effort. One of his assistants told us that. Because, there's why, why do you say that? Because George W. Bush is a born-again Christian. That was so he qualified, you see, to have us visit his church. So we go to his church and we have much bigger signs. Of it was very prominent. We go out there in a very dignified fashion. We wear suits and we talk to the people who will come out and talk to us. And if nobody comes out to talk to us, we go our way. And I suggest that next time the ADL... Gets one of your meetings canceled that you borrow our signs and go down, not to the ADL, but to the biggest synagogue in town on Saturday, and you spend your Saturday down there in front of it holding up signs like this, oh,
0: yeah. accusing...
1: Oh, yeah. They support the money. The, the, the support for Israel could not exist without American Financial clout coming from these people. So this is this is my suggestion. If you do it, I'll tell you what. I'll go too. <laughs> <And> now, <laughs> we have Thirty-one big institutions, and as uh, as uh, Harvey said, we were amazed. We sent this announcement out on the internet to about, uh, about four or five hundred people. Uh, Who uh, are interested in our movement and they go various places. Uh, We got them in some in Virginia and some other places. We got people starting these little units and we make the signs for them and ship them the signs. Uh, And they they take them and start going to their churches. Sometimes just two, three people, one person once in a while. But uh, we uh, were surprised that the biggest news agency in the Arab world carried the announcement of this picket of this church. Why? They know who's killing the Palestinian people. See, they understand there's something wrong with the Christian right, and that. And by the way, it's it's now making press. Um, Now is going to do a story about how George Bush depends upon the evangelical Christian right to keep him in office. Uh, Now there be people are making notice now and talking about there being up to 40 million evangelicals who buy this, buy on this program. So now, if we want to change our country, how about going after a market of 40 million? How about looking to a market of 40 million people who are obviously doing something very, very stupid? I mean, obviously wrong. How can you be more wrong than that? How how can you possibly be more wrong than that? Now, one last thought here before I close. Uh, There's very strong evidence that uh, Cyrus Schofield was paid by a man named uh, Samuel Untemar. He was in Samuel Untemar's private club in New York called the Lotus Club. He kept it secret. He kept it absolutely secret from his family until he died. Nobody even knew it. Nobody even knew what happened to him when he disappeared. Nobody knew he'd ever been to New York. The Lotus Club was, Untemar was the membership chairman. That's the only real connection that has been unearthed yet to show it, except that Uh, The money to allow him to do what he did had to come from someplace, And of course, Oxford Press, at the time Oxford Press printed Schofield's first Bible, they were so Anglican that they had never printed anything written by an American. Not an American, not even uh, Edgar Allan Poe or I don't know whoever. You name it, they never printed an American work. And here, and, and certainly they never printed anything written by an American forger who just got out of prison. But they printed Schofield study Bible. Why do you think that happened? <coughs> well, how do you suppose that happened? Well, I feel that we will eventually dig out the connection to Huntemar, but I don't think that's the most important thing. Uh, this little letter on the back is written on the stationery of Huntemar's Club, and it was one of the few things that connected uh, Schofield to Huntemar, and it was found in, and uh, this guy who wrote the, Joseph Canfield found it when he wrote this book. So. The connection is there. It is the creation of Zionism inside the Christian church. It's the capture of Christianity by the so-called Zionist movement. Obvious thing to do. If you want to take over a country that has, at that time, 150 million people and 75, 80 million went to church, the thing to do is start a movement within the church, isn't it? I mean. You don't have to be real smart to see that you can't do it without doing that. So that's how they did it. And uh, thank you very much for your attentiveness.